All right, well, we are in Revelation, as we have been for the last couple of weeks. Revelation, we are in the, the letter to the third church here, the letter to the church in Pergamum. And as we get started, as you get over there in your Bible, I wonder if you've ever been enjoying a really good meal only to look down and find a hair on your plate. That's a deal breaker to me. Like, it can be the best of the best. It can be, like... I don't care who you are. It can be my wife's cooking, which I love. It can be a, a Michelin chef who's cooked the meal. And if there's a hair, I'm done. I'm done. Like, I just, I'm not the guy that's going to send the food back, but I am the guy that's just going to be done and, uh, and not eat anymore because it spoils the whole meal. Just one singular tiny hair can spoil the whole thing. If you're tracking with me on that or there's something like that for you, then you understand the concept that kind of meets us in this church, and that is that a little bit of corruption can spread quickly and ruin the whole thing. The church in, in Pergamum was facing that very problem. It was a church that was strong in some areas, but had allowed a little bit of corruption to creep in, and it was really soiling and defiling the whole thing. And as we look around our society and our culture today, we can think of churches that are similar to that. We think, can think of churches that may have at one point in time in their lives and their history been solid, but now all of a sudden on their marquee you see the, the rainbow flag. Or maybe you see a church that at one point in time was super strong and biblically sound, and now all of a sudden you look at their leadership and, and they've abdicated the role of, of pastor to the, the male leadership that is prescribed in the, the Bible. Or maybe you look at some churches that seem to be strong and biblical at one point in time in their history, and now they're preaching a gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. And sure, they're, they're packed to the seams, but there's no depth and there's no, no soundness there. Or maybe even more tame than any of those, you look at a church that's just preaching messages that come from whatever the pastor wants to preach rather than what the Word of God actually says. These are some of the things that we find facing the church at Pergamum. And so as we look at this, we're looking at the blueprints for the church. We're considering what type of church does Jesus want us to be at Compass Bible Church as we launch this church here in North Texas. We're looking at God's blueprints for the church. What should we be doing? What type of church should we be? If you're not already there, turn to Revelation chapter 2. And as we do so, let's talk a little bit about the city. Let's talk about Pergamum as a whole. It's modern-day Bergama in Turkey. And these are the, the remnants, the ruins there on the screen of the temple to Athena. And this was a, a city that the, the legend or the myth held that Athena and Zeus both, ha, both had a, a hand in the, the founding of this city. There was the, the founder of the city was believed to have been let loose in the river by his mother. And uh, the goddess Athena and the god Zeus were believed to have rescued this child from the river. And that child went up to, on to then found the city of Pergamum. But Pergamum was known during this day when Jesus was writing this letter about the city as Asia's greatest city. In fact, uh, it was called that by Pliny the Elder. He called it Asia's most famous city. It was the, the capital city of Asia Minor at the time of writing for about 250 years. It had been the capital city of Asia Minor at this time. So this is a, a major uh, landmark. This is a, a known area. Again, it was one of the cities on that, the, the trade route there. And so the letter that was going to Pergamon would have spread easily throughout the whole surrounding region. It was a cultural epicenter of the day. In fact, they had a library there that was second only to the library in Alexandria. This library boasted over 200,000 volumes, which if you think about the time, 
and how hard it was to hand write and hand copy books and, and works of, of literature at the time, that's pretty impressive to have over 200,000 volumes in that library. And it was that library that was raided by Alexander the Great and gifted to Cleopatra after the library at Alexandria was destroyed. And so the library in Pergamum eventually made its way over to Alexandria because of the, the destruction of the library there. And so this was a, an area that where people were well learned. It was a cultural hub of the day. And it was also a, an area where there was a heavy emphasis placed on emperor worship. There were a lot of temples. This was kind of a re religious epicenter of the day as well. There were temples to Athena, as we saw in the ruins there. There was temples to Zeus. There were temples to Asclepius, the god of healing uh, that was in this city. But also, this was a hotbed for emperor worship. This was where they built temples to Rome. They built temples to the emperor. And this was uh, one of the places where the imperial cult was at its highest. And we talked last week uh, about the pressure that was put on those in Smyrna to worship the emperor. You remember they would have to go and they would have to bring offering and burn incense on the altar to worship the emperor there once a year. Well, that was taking place in Pergamum as well. And so you can see this is the, the environment that the church was up against there in Pergamum. What we know about the church, well, is not a whole lot. There's no letter written to this outside of this letter from Jesus. But because of its proximity to Ephesus, we do believe that like Smyrna, this was one of the churches that Paul planted when he went out on his missionary journeys. He would go out from Ephesus. He was there for three years. And he, while he was there in Ephesus for three years, he was journeying around the region of Asia Minor, planting other churches there. So we believe that the church in Pergamon was probably planted by the Apostle Paul during his ministry there in Ephesus. We also know based on this letter that this church was up against persecution, that they were suffering that there was a lot of pressure put on this church to cave into the culture around it. We also know from this letter that there were Christians there that were dying for refusing to bow the knee, as we'll see as we continue to unpack this letter. So uh, the city was a major city, lots of religious work going on there, just not the good kind of religious work going on there. Uh, cultural city, smart city, intellectual city, and not a city that was friendly to the church. And that's the environment that we find Jesus writing to. We pick up in verse 12 and we find the greeting as Jesus introduces himself again to the pastor or the angel. We talked about that last week when it says to the angel of the church in Pergamum. That word angel, angelos in the Greek is the word for messenger. So this is most likely not an angelic being, but the pastor of the church in Pergamum. So as Jesus writes to the church, he says to the pastor of the church, he says to John, write this, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The sharp two-edged sword. Does your mind go to any passage that also talks about a sharp two-edged sword? How about this one in Hebrews 4.12? Hebrews 4.12, which says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Here you have Jesus saying that he is the one that possesses the two-edged sword. That Jesus is the source of the word of God. This was a reference to Christ as the judge and the executioner of that judgment and his word, the scriptures, as the chosen instrument. In fact, as that passage in Hebrews continues, and maybe you're going through it in your mind, it says this, that the word of God, it's piercing. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from it. No creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so when Jesus writes to the church at Pergamum and says to them, the one writing to you, the one writing to you is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
this is not a happy greeting to the church. This is not a, a joyful greeting. This is not a warm greeting from Jesus to this church. This is not the encouraging greeting that we talked about with the church in Smyrna from last week. Remember when Jesus wrote to the church in Smyrna and he said the, the words of the, the one who is the first and the last, the, the eternal one, they were being tempted and, and, and made to worship the emperor as God and, and Jesus was writing to that church to encourage them and remind them, no, 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 he's not God, I'm God, I'm the one who's the first and the last. And then he was encouraging them, saying the one who had died and then came to life. Remember how he was empathetic with that church. Well, this is a different kind of a greeting. This is a stern greeting from Jesus to this church when he says the one who has the, the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus is preparing them to come under the, the, the glare of his judgment in this passage, in this letter. He's getting them ready to understand that he's writing to them and man, it's not going to go well for them. Maybe you remember growing up and mom saying something to you like, just wait till your dad gets home, right? It, you knew, oh man, this is not going to be pretty what follows. Well, that's a little bit about what's going on here as Jesus greets them with this stern greeting. But even so, there is something good going on here. And Jesus begins with that. Verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Think about that. Jesus is writing to this church, and right off the bat, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I was talking with some people just last night about going to Las Vegas. They're like, I don't want to go to Las Vegas. It's the sin city, right? Yeah, and yet, it's not called the throne of Satan, is it? I mean, maybe we might say that today. Well, Satan may have moved, and I think maybe he moved to Las Vegas. But at this time, Jesus himself, the, the Lord of creation, the God of the universe says of Pergamum, this is where Satan's throne is. Well, what is Satan's throne a reference to? There's a couple of options here. Number one could just be just generally speaking, the fact that this was a region known for its idolatry and its pagan uh, just immorality. And so it could have just simply been that, that culturally this is a wicked and evil place. And so Jesus said this is where the throne of Satan is. Or it could have been that here in uh, in Pergamum was the, the altar of Zeus, and this is a, a model of it, but this was a 40-foot-tall altar dedicated to Zeus. And this was an a, a, a altar there in Pergamum. A lot of it has been preserved at the Museum of Pergamum, which you would think would be in Pergamum, but it's not. It's in Berlin, Germany. Um, and so you can go there today and still see this altar. A lot of it has still been preserved, but it was a 40-foot-tall altar dedicated to Zeus. And a lot of people looked at the steps leading up to it and said, well, maybe this was a reference to that. It kind of looks like a throne in some ways. The other option that Jesus could have been referring to, I mentioned they worshiped the god Asclepius. Asclepius was a god known for healing. In fact, his symbol was adopted by doctors in the hospitals today. Does anybody know what that might be? The serpent in the staff. So the serpent came to be identified symbolically with the city of Pergamum. Who else was the serpent identified with? Satan, right? Some think, well, because this was a false god being worshipped there in Pergamum, that this was a reference to the serpent there, and this was the throne of Satan. Others think, well, no, this is a reference to the fact that this is the, the epicenter of emperor worship there in the region, that this is where Christians were being forced to worship the emperor or die. And so because of that, Jesus said this is the throne of Satan. That's the one that most commentators lean towards is that last one, 
But regardless, this is stark, this is startling. It should be sobering for us to hear Jesus describe a city as where Satan's throne is. And he's writing to the church there, to the faithful believers, saying, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know, in other words, Jesus, the Lord of creation, is telling the church there, I know how intense the opposition is. I know how hard it is there. I know how much you're suffering there. Yet you hold fast my name, he says. Yet, verse 13, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. In Colossians 2.19, the apostle Paul there instructed the church to hold fast to Christ, the head of the church. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica to hold fast to the teaching of the apostles, to hold on to their teaching. In Revelation 2.1, which we read a couple weeks ago, Revelation 2.1, Jesus said he held the stars in his right hand. It's the same word in all three of those references that's referenced here. He says to these believers, you've held fast to my name. The name, what name? The name of Jesus. Think of of your family name for a minute. What does your family name mean to you? What does your last name mean to you? The reputation, your identity, right? You you don't want your last name drugged through the mud, right? You you want people to think highly of your last name. You want people to hear your last name and and to think of respectful thoughts in their, their minds, don't you? Well, the same should be true of our holding fast in the name of Jesus. In this culture, in this society, people were enemies of Christ and they weren't hard to find. They were anywhere you wanted to look. People didn't want others to, to, to follow Jesus as Lord of their lives. And so the threat to the name of Jesus was all over the place. The temptation to, uh, to let go of the name of Jesus, the identity of being a follower of Jesus was, was at their, their fingertips every single day. And yet they were not bailing. They were holding fast to the name of Jesus. You've held fast my name and you have not denied my faith. Uh, Probably a better way to to read that is you have not denied your faith in me. You've not denied your faith in me. You've held fast to my name and you, you haven't walked away from your faith. So Jesus is writing to those in the church that had not compromised. Jesus is writing to those in the church whose garments were unstained by the pollution of idolatry and sexual immorality. And he's writing to them saying, look, You have held fast my name. You have not denied your faith in me. And that's commendable. That's good. In Luke's gospel, uh, Luke writes this of, of, or records what Jesus said here in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. The one who acknowledges me, the Son of Man will acknowledge him, but the one who denies me will also be denied by the Son of Man. This church, the faithful ones at this church were in no danger of being denied by Christ. They were holding fast to Jesus. He says in verse 13, there he goes on, he says, Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. This is where we're reminded once again that this is a historical church that Jesus was writing to. That this is not a church age that he's writing about. But this was a specific group of believers in a specific area at a specific time. And he names one of them named Antipas. He says, even in the days of Antipas, you held fast your faith when he was killed for his faith. You say, who's Antipas and what happened to him? Well, we don't know for sure. Church history holds that he was roasted alive inside of a brass bowl. 
that he was locked inside of a brass bowl and that bowl was placed in an, in an open flame and he was roasted alive for his faith. And he's commended here as the Lord's faithful witness. And Jesus says, even when he was killed for his faith, you held fast. This is a commendation that these faithful Christians there in Pergamum were worthy of receiving. That they were standing firm. The temptation to, to jump ship and to abandon Jesus was rampant. It was there. The pressures were, were all around them not to follow Jesus, not to be faithful to Jesus. And yet, there were some at least who were being faithful to Jesus and they were worthy of this commendation. Yet, I want to spin it tonight as we think about our first point of Christ's blueprints for the church. And I want to think about why they were holding fast to Christ. And here's what I'll tell you. I think they were holding fast to Christ not because of their initiative, but because of God's initiative. Our first point tonight is this. Hold fast to Christ because we need to strengthen our hold on the one who holds us. So we think about Christ's blueprints for the church. How should we endure? How should we thrive? How should we continue to be faithful in the midst of a culture much like this one that wants to pull us away from him? We need to strengthen our hold on the one who first holds us. Maybe you've wondered if you would have the same courage that was displayed here by these believers when push comes to shove. If the heat was turned up on you, would you be one of the ones found faithful? I remember growing up and experiencing from afar here, when I was growing up here, the, the tragedy of what happened at Columbine High School. And I remember the story that came out of that, of the, the one young woman who was asked by one of the shooters, are you a Christian? Are, do you love Jesus? And she said, yes, and he killed her. And I remember as a young man thinking, would I have that kind of a courage to hold fast to Jesus in that kind of trial at that moment? Well, yeah, I want to I, I encourage you that if, if you are in Christ, the answer is yes. Undoubtedly, yes, you would. Because your security... Your holding fast to Christ has far less to do with you than it does with God. And if you are in Christ, he's not going to let you go. You say, well, Pastor PJ, where are you getting this from? How about from Jesus? John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. How do we come to Jesus, according to that text? According to Jesus here, how do we come to Jesus? We are given to Jesus by the Father. The Father gives us to Jesus. And then what does Jesus say the Father's will is? That Jesus should lose none of all that the Father has given to him. So will you hold fast when the heat gets turned up? Yes. If you are in Christ, you will not abandon him. You will not forsake him. You will not walk away from him. A little bit later in John chapter 10, we read this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them, what kind of eternal life does Jesus, what kind of life, I gave you the answer, what kind of life does Jesus give his sheep? Eternal life. Not six-week life. He doesn't give us six-month life. He doesn't give us six-year life. He gives us eternal life, right? But then notice he continues on. He says, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So no amount of pressure from the outside is going to be able to rob you from the grip of the Father. We hold fast to the one who holds us. That's why we endure. That's how we endure. When you think about the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who may not be here, but maybe overseas, maybe somewhere else, and you hear the stories of martyrdom and you think, wow, that's amazing, such faith. Would I have that faith? My, my encouragement to you tonight is this. Yes, if you are in Christ, because your faith is buoyed and sustained and strengthened by him as you need it. I have one of my twins, Jonathan, who loves to hold my hand. He comes up to me, and as we're walking places, he did it this morning. We were walking to church, and all of a sudden, I felt his little hand grab mine. And wherever we're walking, he likes to hold my hand. And he comes up and he'll grab my hand and I'll, and I'll, I'll walk with him and he'll hold my hand. And, and here's the thing. As we're walking, he thinks he's safe because he's holding dad's hand. But here's the greater reality. He's safe because dad's holding his hand. Because his little hand, his grip will fail far faster and far easier than my grip will fail on his. So he's safe from anything happening to him. If he trips and stumbles, he's safe because I've got him, not that he's got me. Or if someone were to come and, and try to grab him from my hand, he's safe not because his grip will hold, but because my grip on him will hold. Christian, that's us when it comes to trials and tribulations. We are going to hold fast because the Father holds us. I hope that's a comforting thought to us. As we think about suffering, as we think about trials, as we think about persecution, and what that might look like for us, will we at Compass Bible Church be a faithful church? I pray yes, and I, I can pray confidently yes, because it, it's God who is the one that keeps us, that sustains us, that emboldens us. He started something in you that he's going to bring to completion, Romans 8.30. Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called those whom he called, he also justified, okay? So if you're here tonight and you're in Christ, we're tracking with that. We're nodding our heads with that because you would say yes, right? I've been predestined, I've been called, and I've been justified. My justification, I'm good with the past tense because the death of Christ took place almost 2,000 years ago. Resurrection, that's my justification. I've repented for my sins and trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm justified, past tense. I'm good with that. But what does he go on to say next? He says, in those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Anybody in the room glorified yet? I hope not every morning I get up and look in the mirror. I'm like, God, there's got to be something better waiting for me in eternity, right? We're not there yet, and the Apostle Paul puts it in the past tense. Why? Because your glorification is as sure as your justification, because your justification is rooted in your calling, and your calling is rooted in your predestination, which took place before the foundations of the earth. So Christian, will you hold fast? You will hold fast. Why? Because of our super faith? No, because of our super God, because of the God who holds us. We strengthen our hold on the one who holds us. I hope that's encouraging. If the thought of suffering for your faith concerns you, worries you, causes you some fear, God's got you. There was a commendation, but then there was the condemnation. And that's what comes next, unfortunately, in verses 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. He says, yes, you have some that are holding fast. You have some that are commendable for their faith. And that's good what they're doing. But he says, but I have a few things against you. 
You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Unlike the believers at Smyrna, there were some concerns that Jesus needed to address with this group of Christians. He starts, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You guys remember Balaam, right? This isn't Balaam. It's not Balaam's donkey either. But you remember the story of Balaam and his donkey, how he was going to, to curse Israel, and the donkey ran into the wall a few times, and he began to strike the donkey, and the donkey started talking to him, and he was like, what are you doing? And then he saw the angel of the Lord standing in his way, and, and Balaam was told, you're not going to curse the, the people of God. You remember that story? Well, the rest of the story seems to be that he was then commissioned by Balak to help uh, lead the Israelites astray. And it, it seems, and we pick this up in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, and also Numbers 31, 16. Numbers 25, 1 through 3, and Numbers 31, 16. It, it seems that Balaam was successful in luring the Israelites astray through enticing the Moabite women to go in and and pull some of the Israelite men into their grips so that they would intermarry and that they would go and sleep with these Moabite women and then idolatry began to inv invade and infest the camp of Israel. The false teaching also that was associated with Balaam was, was a, a, a point that was brought into Israel at the time as well. So Balak couldn't get Balaam to curse them and so what did he do? He said, okay, well help me. And they enticed the Moabite women to go in and lure away some of the Israelite men into these these immoral relationships. And that's where Jesus is referencing the teaching of Balaam. You have some that hold to the teaching of Balaam. And there were two impacts of the teaching of Balaam. The first was idolatry. And the second was immorality. The first we see in 14c. He says, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. Food sacrificed to idols. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, there was a, a, a belief at the time that eating food sacrificed to idols would have been to participate in the original act of worshiping the idol the food was sacrificed to. And so you're being lured into the participation of idol worship is what's going on here. By eating this food in a way that, that participates with the initial act of offering this food to these idols. With such a focus on emperor worship and the worship of these other false gods there in Pergamum, you can understand why this would have been a particularly dangerous threat to these believers. And the church was sanctioning this. The church was okay with this. You've got people doing this and you're, you're fine with it. But then the second problem was immorality. And they practice sexual immorality so that you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Again, we don't know specifically the teaching of the Nicolaitans, what it was. However, it looks like it was this libertinism, this antinomian, this anti-law practice that resulted in this rank immorality that the church was putting up with, the church was okay with. This danger in this local church should be evident. Immorality and idolatry can spread like cancer in the church. Some of you have been a part of churches where that has destroyed the church or at least divided the church. It can lead to division, false teaching, false converts, and that's why it's so important for us to take the purity of the church so seriously. Second point tonight is this. Contend for the purity of the church. Contend for the purity of the church. We live in a, a security-conscious world, don't we? We have security systems in our homes. We, we have apps on our phones that we can arm our system or disarm our system from away. We've got cameras in our homes. We can pull up our camera 
and see what's going on in our home even when we're not there. Before Amanda and I moved out here, when we had our house and our house was empty, we would just sit there. Sometimes we just pulled up our camera because we were like, oh, look, there's our house and it's empty and nobody's in there. Go figure. We have, we have apps that you can have. We have websites that will monitor your identity because we're so self-conscious about somebody stealing our identity. And so I've got one. Experian is apparently protecting me. I, I trust them that they, that they are. They say they are. I don't know. But LifeLock, Experian, whatever you have to protect your identity, you've got VPNs that you put on your laptops and on your phones so that when you log onto a public Wi-Fi, nobody's hacking your information and stealing that. We're so mindful of our personal security. We want to guard every single perimeter of our lives and make sure that we are not allowing any threat to creep into our lives. And here's my only thought, guys. We need to be even more zealous about the, the purity of the church than we are the security of our homes. Because there's more at stake. There's more at stake. I mean, if somebody breaks into my home tonight while I'm not there and takes, takes my TV off the wall, that's one thing. If a false teacher gets inside this church, the consequences are far worse. And so we as believers need to contend for the purity of this church. The word contend may trigger your mind to go to a, another passage of Scripture. In fact, it's nearby. It's one page back in my Bible. But if you'll flip back to Jude... Jude, it's the book that comes right before Revelation. We pick up in verse 3. And listen, as I read it, it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Crept into where? Into the church. They've crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although I, you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling He's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, these false teachers, those that have crept into the church, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh and they reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. You see that there in Jude? And Jesus is now writing to the church of Pergamum saying, hey, you've allowed those that are, are promoting Balaam's teaching to creep into the church here. Y'all, we have to guard against any threat to this body, in any threat to this church. John wrote in 1 John that we have to test every spirit, not to believe every spirit, but to test every spirit, making sure that they are truly from God. This is where right perspective on the church becomes important. And we need to begin to, to think about it right now, even before the official launch of this church, that, that those in this room that gather with us are our brothers and sisters in Christ, that this is our family. And look, I know some of you, as I was talking about having security systems, you think, well, yeah, I have a security system because I want to protect my family. I want to protect my, 
loved ones more than maybe I want to protect my things, and that's well and good. And I'm just saying we need to want to protect the, the family that we have here in this church. None of us would welcome a serial raper, rapist or a murderer into our home to, to, to share our, our family's dwelling. You wouldn't do that. We need to be on guard against the threats to the church. You might sound, say, well, that sounds extreme. It is extreme, but so is any threat to the purity of the church, the bride of Christ. So we need to stay vigilant as we converse with people. As new people come into our church, we need to get to know them. We need to find out what are they reading. We need to find out what kind of podcast are they listening to. Who's influencing them? We need to listen to how they're trying to influence other people. And we need to be on guard against anything creeping in that would lead us into the path of error like this church was led. Am I expecting everybody to walk through the doors of the church to be perfect? No, I'm not. Far from it. But there's a difference between an erring sheep and a wolf in sheep's clothing. And they both need to be dealt with very differently. We need to contend for the purity of the church. Pastor Rod and I are going to do that. That's our full-time job. But let me tell you guys, we need y'all to do that with us. We need y'all to do that alongside us. He gives a correction then. He's given the, the, the commendation, hey, you're doing well here. The, the condemnation, mm, man, you've allowed some threats to creep into the church and, and you're, you're not dealing with it. Here's the correction, verse 16. Therefore, repent. Just like in, in Ephesus, you need to repent. You need to do the about face. It's the military term there. You need to do a 180. You were going in this direction. Now you need to go back the opposite direction. You need to repent if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. There's a reference back to the beginning of this letter again. The one with the sharp two-edged sword. He's going to come and judge if they don't repent. They needed to confess their sins of tolerating this false teaching. They needed to repent by rebuilding the walls of sound doctrine and evicting any who would contradict it from their midst. Again, you can be patient with an errant sheep, but a wolf in sheep's clothing needs to be dealt with and, and escorted out of the flock immediately. Immediately, because of the danger. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 about this. He says to the church there, you know what, church? You've got a problem there, and that you've got somebody there whose sin is so bad that not even the, the world puts up with this kind of a sin. And I'll spare us the details of the sin. If you've read 1 Corinthians 5, you know what it is. And he's writing to them saying, church, you're patting yourselves on the back for being so generous and welcoming and loving that you haven't kicked this guy out of the church for what he's doing. Paul says, you need to get him out of the church. This is not good. You're boasting about sin being in the camp and you're okay with it. Church, do we want to love people? Yes. Do we want to be a place where we welcome people? The, the sinful, the, the wounded, the, the, the hurting, the, the errant even? Yes. But not welcome this, them to say, it's okay for you to bring your sinful lifestyle in here and just continue it. We want to welcome you, but we're going to point you towards Jesus. We're going to give you the answer for your hurt. You're, we're going to give you the answer for your sin. We're going to give you the answer for your rebellion against the Lord. And we're going to call you to put that off. And if you don't, and if you persist in it, that's why Matthew 18 is there, guys. That's why church discipline is there. If you're wondering, by the way, are we a church that's going to practice church discipline? Yes. Because it's a biblical command, we should do that. What's the aim of church discipline? Is it just to kick people out? No. 
The whole time it's meant and aimed at, at one thing, and that's the restoration of the sinner. And that's what we need to be after. But listen, we cannot put up with sin in the camp and be okay with it and think that is no big deal, the way that this church was. So Jesus called them, you need to repent. And here's the problem with this, y'all. And this is why so few churches do this today, because this is not fun. This will not fill the seats in the church to draw the hard lines and to call people to radical holiness and godliness, to call people to pursue Christ as Lord is not an easy or fun thing. It doesn't scratch the itching ears. But it's what we're called to do. Not to be soft on doctrine. Not to compromise to fill the seats. But to take God's word seriously. And to call people to follow Jesus with everything that they are. Because we don't want to fall prey to the, the last part of verse 16. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against you with the sword of my mouth. The very word of God that this church was neglecting to enforce, the very word of God that this church was not holding fast to in some areas was going to be the instrument of their judgment. And y'all, as we look around our, our culture and our world today, there's a lot of churches that are going to face that. There's a lot of pulpits, a lot of pastors. James charged pastors and teachers, woe to you, be careful, because you're going to be held to a stricter judgment. And there are churches all over the place whose pastors are going to be held to a judgment that they do not want to face. And the standard is going to be God's word. What did you do with it? That's the only testimony against this church that Jesus is going to need is here's my word. And it's been neglected. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war with the sword of my mouth. But for the church who would do the hard work of contending, the church that would do the repentance, the church that would follow him, there's good here if they would adhere to the correction. Verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, what is the, the hidden manna? What does that mean? Well, John chapter 6, Jesus refers to himself. He says, it's one of his I am statements. He says, I am the what? The bread of life. You know, in the context there, the Jewish leaders had looked at Jesus and said, what you got for us? Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. And Jesus said, Moses gave you manna, I'm the bread of life. And so as John is writing here, and he hears Jesus say to the one who conquers, he will have the, some of the, the manna, the hidden manna. I think it's a reference to Jesus. We will be with Jesus. We will have Jesus. We will be together with him. And then he goes on, he says this, this white stone with a new name written on it. The white stone at this time was given to the victors of the athletic competitions, and that was your ticket to the, the, the victory banquet. If you had the white stone, you got into the, the awards banquet, the victory banquet. So Jesus says, if you conquer, you're going to be given the white stone. And he says, with a new name written on it. That's an ambiguous statement. We're not exactly sure what the new name is, except that it's a, a God-given name, it seems. And I think this is a, a kind of a, that, final, that final stage, that final realization of our adoption as God's children, as God's sons and daughters. We receive this name from God. All of this adds up to God welcoming us into his presence in eternity as those who have overcome the world. And our final point tonight as we land is this. We need to be willing as a church to forfeit the acceptance of man for the welcome of God. We need to be willing to forfeit the acceptance of man for the welcome of God. This letter provided a, a choice for this church. Welcome the world and risk forfeiting the acceptance of God. 
or forfeit the acceptance of the world and gain the welcome of God. And I hope, church, that our choice is a simple one where we sit at least tonight. I hope that all of us would say, yes, we want the welcome of God over the acceptance of man. The Christian that draws these lines will not find it easy in this world. But if they will maintain a focus on what's coming, they will see indeed that it is worth it. There's going to be a a moment when all of us are going to be in eternity, and no matter how difficult it is for us to give up the acceptance of man in some areas in this world, as soon as we're with Jesus, that's going to be a distant memory. And being with Jesus is going to make us say it was worth it. It was 100% worth it. Guys, it's not an unloving thing for us to draw bold, clear, biblical lines and perimeters as a church. It's not unloving at all. But what is unloving is if we recognize a threat to our family and we do nothing about it. I mean, think about your loved ones. If you knew they were in danger and you just were like, yeah, but if I, yeah, I know there's an axe murderer downstairs in my house, but man, if I call him out on being an axe murderer, he's going to be offended. So I'm going to send my kids down to play with him instead. It's absurd. But again, I want to draw the connection to the church. Guys, we, it's, it's an unloving thing for us to tolerate threats to the purity of the bride of Christ. It doesn't love one another well, and it doesn't love the lost well. The world may reject us, but if we hold fast in the name of Christ, we will gain the welcome of God, and that will be worth it. And so Jesus wrote to this church at Pergamum who did have some faithful believers in her midst and he commended them for holding fast. But he called them out and said, you've got some false teachers there and it's a bad thing that you're putting up with them. So you need to repent, calling the faithful believers to take action, to put them out of the church so that they could do what they were called to do and they would receive the reward in the end. This church, y'all, is our family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be put on alert from a passage like this. That as we go to start this church, we need to be all on guard for the purity of this church, to be the type of church that God wants it to be, to be faithful. It's okay for us to be on the wrong side of history. It's okay for us to to be called and thought of as narrow-minded. It's okay for us to get the label of intolerant, to be accused of being Bible thumpers. That is okay because there's no safer reputation for the bride of Christ than to be those that are holding fast to what he's called us to do. Do we want to be a loving church? Yes. Do we want to love the lost? Yes. But do we want to defend and protect the purity of the bride of Christ against any and all threats, foreign or domestic? Yes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for a message like this, a a letter like this that reminds us of what's at stake. And we thank you that You are gracious and merciful and patient with us as you were with this church even to write this letter to them to say, hey, look, there's a problem here and to give them time even to correct it. God, I I pray that we would be a church that's effective at loving those that don't know Jesus and that they would find the way that we love them attractive in in a sense that they would want to know more about Jesus. But God, I, I pray that you would in no way allow us to be a church that compromises to try to make Jesus more palatable to the world. That is not at all going to be effective or right or good for us. Keep us in your word so that the word never becomes the sword that's used against us. 
Keep us faithful to your word. Lord, if persecution is going to come in the future, and we don't know if it will or if it won't, but I, God, I, I just pray that, that all of us would take courage knowing that, that we will be able to stand, not because of our own resolve, but because of the resolve that you work within us, because you hold us fast as we hold you. Lord, we thank you so much for what you're doing here in this church, with this church plant. As we think about its launch, we just pray that you would add to our number for the, the praise and glory and, and reputation of Jesus increase those that are here to be more effective at reaching people that need to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.